for January 7th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 236. Through Candyland took their solitary way. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I am Matthew Rather, your host, straight from the movie theater, uh, here with the panel to discuss Django Unchained, Quentin Tarantino's latest movie. <laughs> Nailed that one. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of the well time to pause so uh panel your question if you could unchain any character and make a film about them uh what uh what character would you unchain drink because peter fenzel is not first in the alphabet joining us is ben adams welcome sir hey how you doing happy new year happy new year to you well i'm if i'm going to unchain a character it's uh he went off the air what, one or two years ago now, I miss him. And I, I sense he was always, he had something bottled up that he needed to get out. So I'm going to do Jack McCoy Unchained. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny. It would become like 24, right? Like right. Uh, he goes on a long vigilante quest, his, you know, chipmunk jowls flapping in the breeze and uh, yeah, is a, just a, you know, what, murderer killing machine. Right, except when he finds the big bad, he doesn't kill him. He just subjects him to like a ten-minute devastating closing closing statement, laying out why he's why he's such an evil man. Right, as a, I mean, as a new uh, or a, a recently sort of begun law student, do you do you is you know Jack McCoy your hero, your legal hero? I mean, he, he he's always been because he's just awesome. Sure, but yeah. I don't know as a, as a recent law student, you don't really get to uh, to do the big uh, dramatic closings just yet. Fair enough. No, you're out of order. No, this whole podcast is out of order. <laughs> uh, hey, that laugh belongs to Peter Fenzel. Pete, who are you hey. going to unchain? Well, both because of the racial overtones and because of their undercharacterization, I'm going to go with a twofer, and I'm going to say Bebop and Rocksteady Unchained. <laughs> uh, I don't know if, for those of us readers, those, re- those uh, listeners, rather, readers, yes, who are not familiar, Bebop and Rocksteady are the, uh, in order, the porcine and uh, rhinoid uh, <laughs> thugs that serve uh, Oroku Saki or Oroku Nagi, depending upon continuity, the Shredder in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series. Uh, um, they are kind of uncomfortably ethnic at times, which is kind of kind of sad. Um, and but they are supposed to represent, I think, like late '80s and early '90s street punks, sort of on the order of Batman the movie, right? Because uh, Bebop has those like snow blindness glasses and the mohawk, and Rocksteady is is rocking like the camos and and the tank top. Although Rocksteady's style, I think, proved to be a little bit more evergreen than Bebop's, which was dated very quickly. Uh-huh. Which is just that's just wild boars have trouble keeping up with the times. They always want to be, you know, the flashy, the flashy animals. Um, but yeah, no, I, I totally envision like a movie where, you know, the Shredder's trying to steal some magical diamonds, and uh, Bebop and Rocksteady get abandoned when the drill tanks leave, like in Sierra Leone or in like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and like decide that they're going to like, you know, fight against the rebels there and sort of establish their own like princely state or something like that. Or maybe they're going to go like against the Shredder or against Lord Krang from Dimension X. Maybe they go the other way from Jack McCoy, and they like go to law school and they come back and they try to sue Lord Krang. <laughs> For like adverse possession of the Technodrome because he sort of generally lets them come and go as they please, uh, or perhaps just to sort of uh, end this discrimination of anthropomorphic animals and, and other sorts of things that seems pretty rampant on the on both the good and evil sides of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles universe. So, but whatever it is, I'm sure it would be compelling. Maybe they just want to be able to marry each other, like just legally, which is something they probably <laughs> wanted to do for a long time, and something that that should be every uh, porcine or ron- rhinoid. Um, helicopter flying uh spandex wearing street thugs right oh it's the tea party's worst nightmare right like yeah pretty soon yeah legalize that and pretty soon you'll have rhinos marrying pigs <laughs> yeah i'm sure that That's... it would be like if we actually made that movie it would be the most sort of disingenuously cited piece of culture ever right <laughs> just everything about like you could you could just look at it and just everything about it would be so terrible they from just everyone would see so uncomfortable with any possible scene that could ever be in that movie that you could use it as an example for anything that people didn't like 
So Bebop and Rocksteady Unchained. That's the that's the bottom of the slippery slope. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, that's in the center of the Earth where the Technodrome is. That's uh, or Dimension X, depending. Yeah. Maybe we can do maybe we can do a scene from it. Rocksteady, I don't care if you have a horn in the middle of your face. I love you, and and I I'm going to snort my love <laughs> to the high heavens. I don't care what they say in Washington. Oh no, it's the turtles! Let's get them! <laughs> All right. <laughs> Even love has to take a backseat to turtle soup. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that was the, the 80s, 1980s screaming guitar s- solo that, uh, you know, would go with the action sequences and Bebop and Rocksteady Unchained, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, there'd be a montage, at least one. <laughs> <laughs> at least one. Uh, all right, I'm going to cheat a little bit because I'm going to do mine as a uh, I'm going to do mine as a uh, as a sequel. Uh, I'm looking back to the 1996 action thriller Chain Reaction, and uh, mine's going to be called Chain Reaction Unchained. <laughs> I remember that. That's Morgan Freeman and Keanu Reeves. They discover a, a, a way of, of hydrogen fusion that involves water or something like that, right? Yes. It's like <laughs> yeah, it's uh, him and Morgan Freeman. Yeah. 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 And uh, Rachel Weiss, and um, yeah, and so uh, it's it's good. We're going to get the team back together, and they're going to use their uh, they're going to use their unlimited source of environmentally friendly energy, and you know, just go around and like give power to things. It's a kind of Robin Hood. It's a sort of you know energy Robin Hood story uh, where they don't they they give power and they give it indiscriminately. They don't care, you know, they don't care who you are. They give it without a sense of moral purpose. Man, that movie was so like in that movie, Morgan Freeman carries around a cigar for the entire movie, which he does not light. And I believe he actually just like has it in his mouth or in his hand, and he's not smoking it. And then I believe he lights it at the very end of the movie, which is a symbol that can't possibly mean anything in the context of what the movie is about. Uh, that, that movie, because it's like I've seen that movie, and lighting the cigar. I mean, I guess you could talk about it being about energy and about the cigar's sort of pent up chemical energy being something that's released when it's being smoked. But I really don't think that's the way it's communicated. It's more like oh, I'm happy this movie is over, you know. Like except that's not Morgan Freeman. His voice. Oh, it also has a really great motorcycle outrunning an explosion scene where he like drives out of an entire like factory city, right? With like the shockwave of an explosion right behind his motorcycle. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, quality, man, quality. Excellent. I'm really surprised no one picked I, I was gonna pick this, but I didn't because I thought someone was gonna take the easy one and say Mr. T unchained. <laughs> Which is gonna be like it's gonna be like rain over me, right? It's gonna be Mr. T is like has to live with uh with um uh Don Cheadle, right? And has to like recover from the fact that he's lost all his chains. I was thinking I was thinking um Jean Valjean unchained. And it mm. would begin just with <laughs> Russell Crowe singing, Monsieur Le Maire, you no longer wear a chain. <laughs> Yeah, I was I trying to think know, of no. like a John Cena Unchained, which is I just think the last ten years. Did he get rid of that chain with a padlock on it at some point? I'm not <laughs> sure. Just step down, if you ask me. Step down. <laughs> uh, well, on to our on to our main topic, which is Django Unchained. Uh, not about the uh, the ban- banjo player. Right? Django Reinhardt played banjo? Anyone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Or about the Django movie, the spaghetti western that has the Italian no, guy. Guitar, guitar player, not banjo guitar player. What, fair, what, what do I know about anything? Uh, about Django's. Um, yeah. Why are there so many songs about Django's and what's on the other side, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not uh, even about the Python uh, you know, application framework. Is there a Python application framework named Django? <laughs> yes. Wow, did they get product placement in this thing? Like, did they pay to get their name out there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's actually, yeah, it's the open source, but yeah, Python web framework that's called Django. That with a, um, you know, great object relational mapper and a, uh, you know, whole uh, great template system. Um, no, it's not. We're talking about Quentin Tarantino's. We're talking about Quentin Tarantino's latest. Uh, latest film, and so I was going to say that I'm really looking forward to the Allison Hannigan sassy railroad worker movie Ruby on Rails. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one redhead, wow, one locomotive, um, <laughs> endless possibilities. It's okay. uh, one, 
one of these days we'll get Randall back and there will be someone on the podcast to appreciate all these jokes that we're making. Because <laughs> well, um, nobody off the podcast is certainly appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, you, if you want a good time, go back to the Overthinking It archives and Google uh, Pete's review during Underthinking It uh, two years ago of Randall Schwartz's book, uh, the podcast guest uh, and uh, over th- friend of Overthinking It, Randall Schwartz, the uh, famous pro programmer. Um, uh, his book, uh, Learning Pearl, um, which is a book, as, uh, as Pete says, that has a lot to say about objects and classes. <laughs> By the way, that entire paragraph is on the inside of a stall of a bathroom somewhere near South Station. <laughs> so uh, on, on to Django Unchained. Um, let me start. I, let me start off with this, just to throw a uh, just to throw a gasoline on the dynamite-induced fire of the <laughs> wreckage of you know our peculiar institution, our peculiar podcast institution. Um, I thought you were talking about slavery for a second. Your <laughs> institution is a little worse than peculiar, man. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I. Uh, so on the TFT podcast, Sheila and I talk a lot about authority. Um, which, uh, you know, uh, in one sort of school of political sciences, and I think it's Weber, though he's the political scientist, you'd have to ask him, um, is uh, defined as power associated with legitimate social purpose, right? You need two things. You need power and you need legitimacy in order to have uh, authority. And I thought, like, that, that that was a very interesting framework as I was watching the film, which I did, I just came straight from the theater here. So it's, it's very fresh in my mind. Um, and I, it was a, an interesting kind of cognitive, uh, you know, framework. Um, speaking of frameworks, of web frameworks, it was an interesting kind of moral framework to look at the, the film through. Because it's, it seems like the film is about power and, and especially about violence. I mean, the, the violent exercise of power. And um, it seems that there, there is some kind of discourse going on, Drink, about uh, legitimate social purpose. I think the, the importance of documents uh, in the movie points to this. That is to say, wanted posters and warrants right and like in that first standoff outside the saloon oh and spoilers by the way for all of Django Unchained spoiler alert throughout Um, in that uh, scene outside the saloon when Christoph Waltz uh, comes out there are a hundred guns pointed at him and his shield against all of those guns is a piece of paper you know and then at the end uh, when Christoph Waltz is dead Waltz I should say right when he's you know when he's dead um, Django comes back and pulls off of him the the papers selling and freeing uh, Carrie Washington, whose name I forget, but you know I think of her as that that woman from Scandal. Uh, Broomhilda, Broomhilda, oh, right? Broomhilda, right? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which is sort of I mean we could like quibble over Broomhilda and Broomhilda, right, with an a- M or an N, uh, but never mind. Um, Just to say it, it's, you know, because jumping the broom, right, is like a slavery marriage uh, custom, right? And that's why Broomhilda by the people involved in slavery and Brunhilda by the people involved in Germany. (laughs) (laughs) And, right, yeah, and Germany, I mean, Germany, well, we should get to this later, but uh, Germany... as as the representative of like high culture of you know real civilization and of a sort of end to barbarism which you know it, in the in the light of inglorious bastards is is an interesting is an interesting tack for him to take and i you know i wonder what you think about that but i i, I want to make my main point which is that like uh, that Slavery, right, like uh, requires specialists in violence in order to enforce the, this, you know, social organization, right? This sort of reprehensible social organization, um, and and sort of the the first act of the movie is Jamie Fox being trained up as a specialist in violence, uh, and you know, becoming extremely adept at it. But there's something, you know, about uh, there, there's something that, you know, his violence is coupled to legitimate, legitimate social purpose in the form of the, the documents in the form of the warrants. And I, um, 
You know, and so I, I don't know. I, I wonder, I wonder what you guys have to say about this. And I think we can also zoom out one level and talk about the film, you know, as itself a document, as a sort of cultural document for us. And, you know, Quentin Tarantino has sort of established himself as a specialist in violence. And, you know, whether he requires, whether you think there is a, a legitimate social purpose to something like Django Unchained, what, what you think it is and, uh, or, or whether it requires it at all. I don't know. Is that a good, is that a good first question to, to throw out there? What do you think of that? There's a lot to start out with. I think one of the first things, when you're talking about him carrying around the papers, uh, it really resonated with me the way that this movie is a Western, right? And in the Western, the hero, the cowboy, is often the lawman. And the battle is that the lawman is trying to create a legitimate social order or support a legitimate social order that is under threat in the American West, which is famously lawless because of the low population density and the lack of enclosed property. And in fact, people are kind of roaming around stealing cattle and doing other sorts of nefarious, awful things. So the lawman is this kind of almost this monistic representation of the abstract idea of the law and social legitimacy and the sort of act, the sort of expressionistic act of this of the singular individual against the hostile universe, who comes out there into the West, right, you know, comes in on the horse and uh, and kind of rights all the wrongs and restores everything the way it should be, or at the very least, you know, stands for the shootout, which is this sort of arbiter. And what the things that Django Unchained does is it casts, it moves the location of the lawless and illegitimate. Uh, part of America from the West into the South by starting in Texas and, and kind of diverging, right? Because they could have gone, if they started in Texas, this could have been a Western that took place in Texas and they could have stayed up in the mountains, right? And they could have continued to be the, the lawmen out there. But instead, the place where there's the sort of, you know, black-hatted railroad tycoon who is making things awful and who does not have legitimate authority, even though he has a certain legal authority and the lawman has to fight him, is the slaver, and the plantation is seen, you know, not as a place that has been civilized, albeit to the detriment of most of its inhabitants, uh, but as a place that is that is un, that is lawless, that is uh, a place that is barbaric, you know, a place that that needs to be civilized, that needs to be, um, you know, it needs a lawman to come in and to fight off the black hats. Uh, and uh, I mean, you know, of course they reverse the color in this movie. It's interesting, white and black. That's a whole other small note to make. You know, in westerns, usually the white hat is the good guy, the black hat is the bad guy. But there's also kind of implicit racism there because the bad guys are often Mexican, and the good guys are almost always white. Uh, and in this movie, of course, we have a bad guy who is black, and some bad, uh, so a good guy who's black and wearing a black hat, and some uh, good guys who are white. But at any rate, you know, there's some vague consciousness of it. What I really wanted to say about all that was. Um, it is trying to. It is trying to, uh, in much the same way that Inglorious Bastards did, uh, really illegitimize uh, an institution that really, at the time, you know, broad social, not just institution, but just you know, regional way of life, sort of you know, macro government, social, economic body, you know, and, and use film as a powerful weapon to delegitimize it. And this is to basically saying, look, and in, we insist. That slavery is this evil that makes the people who do it completely without our mercy, right? Like they are – it is okay if they get shot, right? Like that is uh, – that seems to me one of the relationships between law uh, and the fact that her freedom paper, right, is the last big document in the movie. That all the other documents lead up to this paper that is freedom, uh, which is of course the same document at the end of the movie Lincoln, um, is interesting. So – Right. It, the, another kind of comparison to a Western that's, I think, kind of inverted here is that in the Western, <clears throat> typically the lawman is, you know, outgunned, but not not as a matter. They're outgunned because the cavalry is too far away because they had to cable, you know, the next town for the reinforcements and they're not going to get here in time to beat the cattle rustlers. Whereas in Django, it's kind of the opposite, where if the cavalry comes over the hill, it's going to be bad, more bad guys. Yeah, it's. I mean, it seems to me um, to kind of refine on what what Pete said, right? Like the the cavalry and the um, oh god, the scene with the eye holes was was truly glorious. <laughs> that, that was truly brilliant. Yeah, it was truly inglorious because it's <laughs> it's. But I I mean I think that the thing is to kind of reduce. I I wonder about the kind of the the social meaning of that scene because it 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 reduces a real historical evil to a kind of farce, uh, mm-hmm. 
right? Um, but the yeah, yeah, that those guys are gonna are going to be awful, right? The the I would say, I mean, I would say that the dynamic of the Western, and this is something that I've said a lot of times on this podcast and elsewhere, is is that you know the the cowboy or the the hero is a person who who does some unsavory things right there there as i said before a specialist in violence and and the the community which is seen as valuable and good relies on their uh on their doing things that ipso facto kind of exempt them from membership in the community uh but the community needs that in order to survive and i've always kind of seen that as actually kind of a, a metaphor as a sort of film or a story metaphor for slavery that is to say um, there is this kind of original sin at the the core of our society of of our like uh, Americanness um, that can't be that can't be really exercised. But in this, I mean, American society, it's there is no community that's good. You know what I mean? In in this film, there are these kind of dyads. Uh, that are good, right? But the, it it seems to me like there's no social organization. There's no group of more than two people in this film uh, from family, right? Like three brothers to the the Ku Klux Klan, uh, or as they're called in the uh, as they're called in the credits, the Bagheads, right? <laughs> um, to uh, you know, to the whole plantation. Um, there's no social organization that's good. So it's not like the the um, you know it's not like the hero is doing what he's doing in service of a social organization. He's doing it quite literally to kind of blow up uh, a way of life. There's no you know there's no saving. There's no saving these people and anyone who like a lot of the things which in westerns exempt you from. Uh, getting shot, like for example, being a woman, you know, or you know, there, there's a nuanced. I mean, there's a sort of nuanced view uh, that would say that Samuel L. Jackson is sort of complicit. His character is sort of complicit in the the uh, institution of slavery and the kind of the horrors that go on on the plantation. Um, that he's complicit in those things, but but yet should be spared. Um, at the end of the movie, but that's not that's not the the view of this movie, right? Where you know he deserves almost more than anyone uh, to to be blown up yeah. because because he's in addition to being you know part of this bad social system, he's he's a traitor. So it it seems to invert it seems to invert the Western in a number of of uh, other ways as well, which is which is to say we're all we're all um, we're all going to get blowed up. You know, this, there, there is no good, right. There is no good society. I mean, one, one of the other things to consider when talking about these movies is the context, uh, that they're of the watcher, right. The context of the audience. So a Western being watched by people in America in the 20th century and say like even the forties or fifties or even earlier than that, there's the idea that the, you know, the country, these are times when the country is dealing with external threats, and there's a notion that whatever the events of the movie are, at the end of the day, the West will be won, right? It will be settled, it will be American, uh, and so there's an eventuality, an inevitability. And of course, again, you know, a lot of the, the spaghetti westerns I have to revise because they're not made in America, you know, a lot of them are made in Italy. Um, but uh, I think I think from the perspective in American culture, there's a sense of things are going to be okay because we know from where we are that things are going to be okay. And in this movie, we know that things aren't going to be okay. That the that the thing that is inevitable. I mean, what's the what are the first words that appear yeah, in any two form? years before the Civil War? Exactly. It's like yeah. all these people are going to die. You know, like everything is everybody's going to all hell is going to fall down on these people's heads. And and it's it's we're at this point in American history where they're kind of unpacking the reasons why they're not killing each other. Right? Like the various parts of the country are kind of trying to figure out how to get away from the the various restraints they have from murdering each other. Right. And, and so like yeah. yeah, Django is not going to become one of the two young soldiers in the first scene of Lincoln reciting the the uh, Gettysburg Address back to Abraham Lincoln, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, the Civil War isn't seen as this righteous thing that's gonna come down and free the slaves. In this movie it's seen as the sort of inevitable destruction of this entire group of people. Right, and that, that it's just going to—it's it, not like it's going to be a good thing. 
right? Like, like the scene that really gets to me, I mean, I guess it's going to be a good thing because slavery is going to be gone, but I mean, that's, that's sort of not where the movie takes it. I mean, the scene that gets to me is the scene where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio or where Candy insists that Schultz shake his hand, right? And there's this idea that as long as, as this, and if, if you think of Schultz as kind of the representative of the Republicans and, and Candy as the representative of the Democrats, right, or of the North and the South in the pre-war <laughs> era, um, uh, and, and the reason I would identify Schultz with the Republicans is that the German immigrants at the time were very much on the side of the Republicans because the Republicans were pushing for immigration reforms that more Germans could move into the, the new territories and turn them into free states. Uh, you know, and it was a whole sort of relationship of, of influences and, and mutual benefit. Um, but it's like as long as they see each other as hostile and as long as they're each trying to achieve something, right, as Schultz says, you know, slavery, I don't like slavery, uh, but as long as it exists, I'm going to use it to my advantage and I'm going to be okay with that, right? Um, and we have to remember why we're here and what we're trying to do. So if you're in this hostile relationship, which is kind of similar to the way that the two political parties deal with each other these days, although hopefully not as gr- gruesome in its outcome, um, and as long as you see the other person as antagonistic and as long as you're trying to work within the system to try to get advantage against them or get the thing that you want and you can sort of tolerate the fact that you hate them and you have to coexist with them, that's fine, but it's like the final thing that sets off the movie's civil war, the sort of destruction of everybody is just the insistence that we have to be friends with each other, that we have to be okay with it. You know, we're really not okay with it, and, and uh, nobody in this movie is okay with what's going on. Um, and I don't know. And that's I, I sort of rambled a little bit, but that's sort of that's what I see as the most allegorical historical moment in the I, movie I, about this. The this, yeah, ben? this might be optimistic, but uh, I think there there could be a little more. You, you could take that allegory one step further by looking at the fact that at the beginning. The relationship between Christopher Waltz and Django is one of convenience. One of Christopher Waltz is trying to accomplish his own economic goals. But then by the end, it's pretty clear that he has a personal stake, a moral stake in what happens to Django and uh, Broomhilda. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, you can, you can kind of compare it to Lincoln how, or the, the Civil War, how the Civil War pretty clearly began not as an effort to free the slaves, but rather for the North's or south you know but but for economic interests for political interests for the 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 larger goal of keeping the country united slavery or no but then by the end as lincoln argues at least we there was more at stake by the end of the civil war than just the narrow economic interests that so much so much so that it actually required compromise from tommy lee jones right uh, as much as right, like Tommy Lee Jones was unhappy at the movie, and and Jackie Earl Haley was unhappy at the end of the movie, and but there was such a moral imperative to sort of end the war, to sort well, of get the big win right at right. the end of the war that a lot of stuff a lot of stuff had to uh, had to fall by the wayside. I guess Jackie Earl Haley was more unhappy than Tommy yeah. Lee Jones because well, because to me, kind of the takeaway at the end of Lincoln is that more blood was spilled at the end because of the the imperative to end slavery. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Pete, and it's similar to similar at the end where Christopher Waltz could have walked away, but couldn't couldn't quite do it. And that's sort of, that's why the bloodbath happens at the end of the movie is because he wasn't willing to completely walk away from the situation. Right. You can, yeah. You can imagine a different movie where he where he pulls a uh, a what's his name Senate uh, uh, representative um, Ted Stevens Stevens. Yeah, no, it's not, not Stevens. That's Ted Stevens. Stevens. Ted Stevens. Yeah, yeah. He, he Sorry, it's a it. series of tubes. It's a series of tubes. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he, he pulls uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones right. Uh, you know, just swallows the bile rising in his throat, shakes his hand, and they walk out of there. Uh, you know, with their tail between their legs, but but unharmed. But this, I mean, I think this film could not be satisfied with that because I think the larger uh, the larger point of the the film, you know, is that they all they all have to get blowed up. But I, I'm so I'm I'm curious and kind of turning to something that Pete said before, which is that like thinking about what we, uh, you know, what this film means to us now and our our position watching it. Um, did we need a movie to tell us that slavery was bad? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, uh, moving, moving on to my next question. <laughs> Sorry. I'll, I'll, you go ahead, Ben. Uh, I don't think we necessarily needed a movie to say that slavery was bad. I think we maybe needed a movie to say that slavers were bad generally. Because there's definitely this view of this lost south of gentlemen 
farmers that weren't really that bad. They were just a product of their time. I mean, that's that's kind of the the modern narrative of the Confederacy. Not not certainly among everybody, but that, but certainly among people that a substantial minority of people. And there's certain you know you look at uh, um, Gone with the Wind, of course, that kind of takes this view that there was this genteel aristocracy that was in, involved. And this movie takes great pains to take take them down a peg I, that you, you mentioned the, the farcical nature of the bagheads. i think that's what it was going for is that these guys are clowns that the kkk isn't a you know malevolent force it's it's a bunch of morons it's not um, yeah to, it's not this is the anti-birth of a nation right and to me one of the most important lines of the movie is the bit where uh the lawyer is that he pre- he prefers monsieur candy and Christopher Waltz starts speaking French, and he quickly corrects him. No, 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 he doesn't speak French. He just likes to pretend that. <laughs> right, like the French, like like German, being here a symbol of civility. I mean, of, of right. culture. And it I, is, I, I, this, I, this, sorry, go ahead. I think the movie's trying to take that image down a peg that these were they were playing dress up as gentlemen, um, but in reality they're slavers. They're doing these horrible things. Sure, uh, well, I. Let's see. I want to follow on, but Pete, why don't you go first? Well, I just wanted to say quickly that one of my favorite lines in the movie is the one where the woman turns to Christoph Waltz and he says, he's a, he's a Francophile, you know, what civilized man isn't, right? And is like, and this is the German who's been telling us the story of Siegfried, right? Like, right. It's, <laughs> it's like, oh, you'll find out what sorts of civilized men aren't Francophiles, my dear. <laughs> you know, like, you'll find out in a couple of years. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was something that I enjoyed. And his relationship between, like, because the story of Siegfried, it felt to me very conspicuous that he i mean this is of course in the 18 1850s right and uh and gosh i want to check like the and we can go back to the other side i don't want to digress too far but i want to check the um the publication date uh yeah this is like when did the ring of the nibelungen actually come out uh oh it actually hadn't come out for another 25 years the the opera you mean yeah, the opera, the opera, the ring cycle. Wagner was alive, but was not at the height of his powers yet. Um, but, like, this is the, uh, this is this is definitely, like, it's very rare in American culture that we come across people talking about the myth of Siegfried as if it's a really, really famous story that everybody ought to know, right? Like, because that's almost <laughs> never how it's framed. It's almost always, like, a crazy thing that Germans tell each other before they kill everyone else. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I don't want to digress too far from from Ben's point, Matt. Did you have a response to it? I have my own, but I want to be patient and and <laughs> no, get your get your piece in, Pete. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I totally. I, another scene, another moment I love is when uh, Leonardo DiCaprio talks about how Southern hospitality demands that they do these nice things for Christoph Waltz, and when he complains about how uncomfortable he is when he goes to Boston. And I just, I, I spent a lot of time after seeing that movie, not a ton, but a little bit of time thinking about what it would be like for him when he goes to Boston. Uh-huh. Right? When he's like hanging out with Boston. He doesn't get like the fancy sh- drinks that he wants or the fancy food that he wants. And yeah, the and, coconut. Uh, they don't have. They they don't know from coconuts in boston right yeah 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 and then like i thought about the sort of greatest uh video filmic portrayal of a bostonian in recent years which in my mind is uh is uh paul giamatti as john adams in the uh <laughs> in the john adams miniseries where he's just like such a classic early american bostonian with his sort of insistence on you know the rule of law and all this other stuff uh and, and being just really persnickety and difficult to deal with and i thought that was very funny but yeah, no, i, I totally agree that they're trying to take the slavers down a peg they're trying to they're trying to rewrite the history of gone with they're trying to rewrite gone with the wind and turn them into monsters um but it's sort of it's sort of similar to inglorious bastards in the sense that at the end of inglorious bastards it's not the americans really it's not really the american army and the soviets who take down hitler and reconstruct germany right and there's no valkyrie plot or any of that stuff it's the jew who kills hitler with a machine gun right uh and and in this movie it's not the the civil war that that ends the uh, that sort of marches down and liberates the south. It's the black guy like blows up the house, right? And um, 
And I think that that's important. Uh, I think it's important, and it's, I think it reinforces Ben's point, which is that like we are. This is a movie that is not just concerned with identifying these people as bad, but retelling their story, changing it, retconning it to like make them just to make them demonic, which I don't necessarily see as a bad thing because that's kind of the point is that these kinds of genres of movies have been doing that anyway, whether we're aware of it or not, to the people that they talked about. But further, I think that the movie that this the society does need a movie. That demonizes slavery, but Matt, if you had a response to Ben's before I offer that counter, um, go for it. Well, I I just think I wonder how, uh, in the same way that that you know there can be sort of no anti-war movie, right? Like I wonder if if there can be no anti-slavery mo- movie, kind of in the same way. It's Why, because slavery always looks so awesome. Well. <laughs> violent. I, I mean, violence always. That's looks. what that one original ones, right? Is like there could be no anti-war movie because war looks so great on film when you film it, right? Well, I, I think violence looks so great, and like I, I think that like there's there's like an almost kind of loving, like borderline fetishistic attention to the, you know, I don't know, to the gouts of blood and the flesh exploding, to the uh, like details of. Of the the uh, horrific wrestling match, you know that happens. Um, the, the you know what I shouldn't say wrestling match. That is a insult to the great sport of wrestling. But you know, <laughs> we've already cited John Cena once, so we should keep him in our good graces. Um, uh, see yeah. him three times; he appears. um you know that the the, uh, let's see and what's the i i think the whipping right like especially the the whipping of kerry washington where where there's this kind of like ecstatic um hysterical uh spasmodic transports um that she you know undergoes when when being whipped in flashback um, and I think that, like, it's even because it's a flashback, it's even shot grainier or shot with some kind of color treatment um, or something like that to kind of, I don't know, to aestheticize it even more. Um, that That is to say that kind of the whole, the whole, like, aesthetic, it's so, it's so... It was just so masterful. It was so freaking well made and so beautiful, really, to look at a film that like that I wonder I sort of wonder about I I wonder about the the purpose. I mean, I agree with all of you, with both of you at sort of at the level of story about what's happening, about sort of demonizing. And and yeah, sure, maybe this this um, these people need to be taken down a peg. Yeah, absolutely. Or like or that we need to kind of we need need to temper our nostalgia or America generally needs to temper its nostalgia for a sort of bygone time in the South, a a way of life that's gone with the wind, right? Like that, that we need to sort of stop sentimentalizing that fair enough. But, um, but I think that it's, it's undermined slightly by how much the camera loves those, how much the camera loves torture and how much the camera loves to to sort of to capture uh bodies in pain you know how how compelling that is on film i think it's i you know i think it's sort of undercut and and what's missing for me and this is the last thing pete and then i promise i'll i'll yield the floor to you uh to the senator from 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 boston uh but um what's missing for me in all this violence or in all this kind of uh, moral outrage at how awful these social institutions were um, is any sense of sorrow, right? And any sense of sort of loss or any sense of pain beyond the physical um, that, that right? Like rather than, and, and so let me, sorry, Pete, I'm, I'm, no, put, going, I'm putting, I'm putting one more on the pile. Yeah. Um, compare the, the apparition of Kerry Washington in, um, uh, uh, to Jamie Foxx, right? Like as he, as he's riding around, she sort of appears from time to time. And these aren't 
sort of profoundly disturbing experiences as you imagine they might be, he's, you know, he kind of smirks. He's kind of, you know, or kind of snickers. Like, he's kind of jazzed by this because he knows he's, you know, riding to retribution. Compare that apparition to the apparition of William Wallace's wife at the end when he's being tortured in Braveheart, where there's a sense of sort of longing, there's a sense of kind of reaching beyond the physical to the spiritual, and there's a sense of, like... uh, there's a sense of kind of not yet, you know what I mean? There's a sense of a kind of spiritual perfection not yet attained, right? In those, uh, in, uh, at the end of Braveheart. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a lot more sentimental, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a, a lot more sort of tugging at your heartstrings, but I, I don't know. I think that that, that sort of, that relentless violence without a sense of sorrow in, you know, in a movie that's that's about sort of freedom and and other and the the kind of horrors, the inhuman horrors of dehumanizing, you know, a whole race of people, um, I, I think without any sense of sorrow, the violence is kind of dehumanizing. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I would say I, there's, I think, I two big responses to what you just said, which I think also ties into what Ben just said and what I wanted to talk about previously. And the first is good. Consider as, as the long as we've of, got uh, all of that procedural stuff out of the way, please. All of that out of the way, <laughs> finally get to get to brass tacks. So this is a Quentin Tarantino movie, and the Quentin Tarantino movies all exist in a, a mind space that's similar to one another. And like Pulp Fiction, like Inglorious Bastards, like like the other Quentin Tarantino movies generally, although I haven't seen Jackie Brown, uh, there is an opinion about humanity or there is an aspect of humanity. I, I would say that it's not that Quentin Tarantino is saying that humanity is like this, but that there is an aspect of humanity that Quentin Tarantino sees, feels, is inspired by, is obsessed with, kind of turned on by. You know, this grindhouse mentality, this part of ourselves that's, that's you know, I don't want to say animalistic because that implies a – a superiority to it that I don't think is appropriate for how you would name that thing, right? Like this this visceral, gutsy kick-assitude, right, that, that people have, this this bloodlust that people have that is part of our, our nature, part of who we are and what we do to each other, and that Quentin Tarantino's movies, to an extent, all exist in a framework in which this sort of stuff is happening, and people are doing this sort of thing to each other. And so his the progression of his oeuvre, right, of his body of work, is to has become sort of who am I going to indict, or who am I going to show, and against the context of this kind of human savagery, right? And which I think is kind of cool. I think it's cool. I think it's 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 exciting. It's thrilling. It's sexy. It's you know it's got cool music behind it, right? Like. And I mean, yeah, you could say that, that this is not the most ro- morally robust way to present any sort of historical context or human struggle. But then you could say, well, it's possible for there to be more than one movie that covers all of human experience, right? And, and these movies cover this kind of experience. And the question is, if we're going to make movies about this kind of experience, should there be one about slavery? And the answer is, of course there should be one about slavery, because slavery is one of the worst of these things, where people can totally be entirely comfortable with this brutality against each other you know sitting i mean i think i read i was talking to somebody who was you know reading an article and and the sort of in the buzz pre-movie when they were filming this movie they're saying well it's one thing to talk about slavery and to say you're going to make a movie about slavery it's another to be on set and to have all the black people picking cotton and all the white people drinking lemonade on the porch right like that should be an image that is shocking and horrifying and just as much so as as something that's in grindhouse right it's in the same world as uma thurman getting the adrenaline shot into her heart in pulp fiction Right, like this is the same kind of. The point is that history is often made austere or elevated when it really can be seen as part of the same sort of narrative. So that's kind of like umbrella one, right? Is that like this is a Quentin Tarantino movie? You should, we should not expect it necessarily to be like Braveheart, where the violence is ultimately redemptive. Uh, it is really about the limbic system and people's emotions and reactions, uh, like sort of people's. I guess I don't want to say id because again, that introduces a scheme that's inappropriate. But it's like you know, it's like. Of a piece with black exploitation, crime stuff, or Scarface, or any number of sure. other movies from and, other places. And just to, to piggyback before you go on, the the you can see the kind of oeuvre of Quentin Tarantino kind of progressing to a, a, and engaging a kind of greater and greater degree of moral horror to where yeah. from Reservoir Dogs, where you know it's gory, but no one gives a crap about about anybody in that movie through this. 
Right, exactly. I mean, and it's not a coincidence that he dies in this movie and dies in a bunch of his other movies, right? He puts himself in the movie to be brutally murdered, right? And it sort of shows you where he stands and his relationship with this stuff. Not above it, but in the middle of it, right? Uh, And then the second umbrella is the umbrella of slavery movies. And there are a lot of slavery – I mean, the the Ur – slavery movie is probably the miniseries roots right that's the kind of big american cultural film depiction of slavery that has influenced all the others it's the most important at least in my in my mind maybe there's others that have influenced it but when i think about it i think of roots i think of lavar burton kunta kinte being beaten and so that he has to rescind his name you know i think of all of the stories of the underground railroad that come from that you know like the stories that we tell about slavery and overcoming slavery are stories of like harriet tubman and people working really hard and and you know trying to run away and and there is a, a stoicism in these movies that is combined with a separate social mission that is more contemporary to try to advocate for uh, a social order. You know, this is kind of, you know, African-American black people in America trying to advocate for a perception of black people, African-American people, and, and also an aspiration among their community to better themselves, uh, an epic. They want an epic that is going to give them uh, self-respect, respect of others, and a story that they can tell that will make them proud, right? Because one of the greatest crimes of slavery is that it strips these people of their ancestral stories, strips them of their families. They end up in the country not really knowing where they come from. If you ever talk to a friend yours who's descended from slaves uh you know one of the more harrowing things i found is just how little they know about their ancestors right it's not like oh i knew this one was on this you know plantation or whatnot it's like i there's no records that i have access to right like yeah actually my girlfriend and i were talking about that the other day she is you know has has done a a great deal of sort of sociology and cultural studies and, and women's studies and things like this and and you know one of the one of the interesting things in in these fields now is something called intersectionality that is to say um, the the intersection of kind of various forms of identity politics like what does it mean to be you know for example a Chicano activist and a feminist at the you know what I mean and how do those discourses intersect mm-hmm. uh, historically and how do they intersect discursively in the academy you know at the present time and so she and I were, were having a discussion apropos of something something else about the the sort of the uh, the kind of the great tragedy of this this kind of huge disjunction this huge moment in history uh in the slave trade where where people are sort of where you know people are kidnapped are you know forced into slavery and are sort of taught a new language and sort of robbed of their like robbed of the the um, robbed of the history and their sort of ancestral history of like, uh, you know, who they were in Africa and what part they were from and all those, because all of those like different, um, all of those sort of different regions and the sort of different um, histories are, are extremely rich. And actually, it's something that Alex Haley gestures at a little bit in Roots in the first section when uh, when Kunta Kinte sort of grows up in Africa and they talk about the 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 um, they talk about the oral history and the sort of the keepers of the oral history. There's a, there's a word for it that for the life of me, I can't remember right now. But, the you know, these people um, who who sort of tell the stories, you know what I mean, who, who sort of keep the the stories alive and it's it's seen as being like a very human thing it's an oral culture and 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 not a written culture and that this sort of disjunction um is is one of the great sort of one of the great sort of terrible uh uh legacies of slavery and that there are some efforts to overcome it that have to do with like genetic testing and kind of determining what what part of africa your ancestors were from so that you can kind of reclaim some of that that you know what i mean that sense of like being part of generations and generations of history yourself anyway uh, sorry back to you oh yeah no and i've had one of my friends actually did that and it's interesting what it can tell you and what it can't tell you uh but the point is that there have been a lot of these kinds of stories i believe and i and i do believe that at this point they've supplanted the harriet beecher stowe uncle tom's cabin na- slavery narrative which as as i was sort of thinking well that's the other really uh, like popular right right and like hopefully we've you know the mission of of roots was successful and we've replaced the historical epic of black people from like uncle tom's cabin with kuntikinte and roots right but the problem with it 
is the problem with a lot of these sorts of epic uh, narratives, which is that you know you 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 create a lot of imitations and people keep retelling it, and it becomes this really embedded way of thinking about it. But then it turns out that there's going to be certain assumptions that you started out with, or that are kind of necessary because of your conventions of storytelling, that then creep into and inform the 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 general understanding of things in a way that you didn't that isn't really beneficial right and this is the same impulse that has us do like you know the play like desdemona was it um is it desdemona no is it desdemona the play gosh i'm i'm blanking on which heroine is from which shakespeare play gosh but yeah the play of like the woman's side of othello um, and it's like, oh, we got to see the, what the women's perspective is during the, the Shakespeare play because there is this unfortunate flaw in the way that the Shakespeare plays are told where the women don't get to actually step forward. And so the narrative and the culture building and, and nation building that's happening in these proud, stoic slavery movies, of which, you know, Glory is another big one, right? Even though Denzel Washington is a bit subversive in it, uh, it does, I think insufficiently villainize the institution of slavery because it has to present the journey to a redemption from it in this this proud positive light it's kind of pseudo religious it's it's sort of the struggles of the slave become the struggles of the soul and the adversary in the struggles of the soul is not man it's nature right and it's yourself right and so it's not really about the slave overcoming the master it's about the slave overcoming circumstances right. and the slave overcoming and oh yeah right? and the slave sort of looking for divine guidance and that's how the slave rises above uh, the slave's position and, and achieves sort of full personhood and humanity and 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 dignity right dignity really above all else pride i, I think it's yeah. i think one important difference i don't, I, I haven't seen roots but i my, my understand i i kind of i know the type of movie and and work you're talking about so something i think it's important in this movie is that Django has a lot of agency in the movie mm-hmm. he has his own goals his own story um his own personality and they're not all positive he's not a you know magical black person right. you know he picks the ridiculous outfit mm-hmm. which is negative but it's you know it's something that is perfectly reasonable and it makes sense in context um, and throughout it's yeah. and throughout it's his goals that drive the story. Pretty pretty much as soon as he gets rescued and as soon as they get the the bounty, it's his goal of finding his wife. That's what drives the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that's very important as a shift, as opposed to just as you said, a very stoic movie. Even Glory, Matthew Broderick, it arguably goes through the bigger character arc. Yeah, in a movie predominantly with black main characters the white character is the one that has the largest character arc yeah, yeah exactly exactly but uh, and, i mean i think that that it's like you know Django exists in complement to these other stories right it's that um we oh gosh it's like because the, the slavers in these stories are made up to be these mon- they're either these monsters right where they're just really cruel and, and they're they're very kind of like uh like sneering and and melodramatic in a way that makes them very easy to not identify as people i often think about if you watch stage productions of movie of plays of civil rights the white people have these often have these awful fake southern accents because they're not comfortable portraying themselves as like actual plausible human beings right and like right. one of the great things about django unchained is that leonardo dicaprio was so charming Right, like he's charming, right. he's successful, he's rich, you know, and it's like, and it's he's not the like sort of sneering slave master who's like looking down his nose at all of the slaves. He likes the slaves, you know. He just doesn't he doesn't care that they don't get what they need out of life. And he has, a, he, has a, he has a sort of like peculiar relationship with Samuel L. Jackson, where like it's clear that like in private these two men can like you know talk to one another or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's really what I was saying with this whole second thing was you want a disruptive, iconoclastic movie like Django Unchained that couldn't have been made before Roots but can be made after it once you've kind of installed in the culture these tropes that kind of need to get blown up a little bit to remind us just how bad it was. Right, so that we don't think of it as this thing that was a spiritual journey (laughs) because the stories inform our politics. Right, it's like people talk about us living in a post-racial society and racism being over, right? Because because what is Obama but the ult, you know in the way that he's portrayed in these contexts, but like you know the transcendence of the soul journey of the African American up to the ascendancy of president, right? And, and it's like we we get to totally forget that there were people who were you know I mean they weren't beating his ancestors for the most part, but like uh, um, as far as I know. 
but like you know, there was a lot of really bad stuff done by a lot of bad people who were not seen as universally villainous uh, and were just as much a part of this country as anybody else. So, you know, those people, you know, are are, are rightfully should be rightfully positioned along all other sneering cinematic villains for our repudiation. Um, right. I- I think Even that actually, problematic, yeah. I think that actually touches back with what Matt was saying about the importance of documents. That mm. the thing that makes I would argue that the thing that makes slavery so horrible is the degree to which it was legitimized. Mm-hmm. If it were a bunch of if it were just like a bunch of people outside the law doing a bunch of terrible things, it it's arguably worse if the exact same terrible things are being done under this highly organized, highly legitimized with you know the same same exact laws and protections that we use for everything else in modern society or you know pre-modern yeah, society sure well it's i mean because we use law to kind of uh, we use law as a discourse to talk about our ideals for ourselves right like our ideals of behavior and sort of by defining crimes right like by defining the boundaries of what is unacceptable we sort of carve out a territory of behavior that is acceptable Mm-hmm. And so by creating a system of laws, uh, by creating a, a system of laws around slavery, it, it like gets it gets legitimized in a way that it's not like if, you know, if it were just Lord of the Flies, right, if it were just the war of all against all and, you know, and some people happen to come out on top, that's, you know, that's one thing. And, it, you know, it might be unpleasant, but but, you know, it, it, it to use a phrase that Pete hates, it is what it is. Um <laughs> But, At the very least, we couldn't have done anything more than we did. Right. right? Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but like in a, you know, when once you once you sort of tart it up, right, as it were, in a, you know, in the fancy clothes of, um, uh, in the fancy clothes of of uh, a whole legal system that grows uh, that grows up around this, and uh, you know what I mean, and the idea that like. You know, Kerry Washington isn't free until like Leonardo DiCaprio finishes signing. You know that that there's a whole. If you really sort of engage with that uh, intellectually, there's a whole level of horror to that. That that is um, uh, really kind of difficult to process. Right, yeah, and it's it's really important to the story that they get that piece of paper because even if they kill everybody on the plantation, right? If the piece of pa- if they didn't recover the piece of paper, then they're on the ro- they're still going to get caught most likely because yeah, they're not going to prove he's, she's free. I mean, it's funny. They're on the run at the end of the movie. They're outlaws, right? But that's it in for her. That's an upgrade, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like outlaw is an upgrade. Uh, so I put out the, uh, I put out the call on Twitter before we started to see if anyone had, uh, uh, had questions and at dromedary, uh, has one that I love, which is that uh, Pete. What do you think? Uh, how does Django and Chain change the way we think about Paradise Lost? <laughs> well, I mean, we actually can can talk about this, right? <laughs> we, we actually <laughs> there's a lot we can say about it. Go, you start. Uh, I mean, well, so we talked about epic. And Paradise Lost is positioned as an epic for the human race, right? Uh, the, under a, a Christian framework uh, of yeah, understanding. Speci- specifically, the genre of epic it is is one called theodicy, which is, um, as as Milton puts it in a, I mean, in a line that is great in so many ways that I, I can't begin even to catalog them, let alone explain them. Um, to justify the ways of God to men. Uh, so that's yeah, that's the kind of epic that Paradise Lost is. Right, right, right. Which is uh, uh, not and what Django Unchained is. If Django Unchained is sort of a counter epic, right? If we see if we if we see it as sort of a, a subversion of the Western, a subversion of the slave narrative, and somewhat of a counter reaction, uh, and the purpose of Theodicy is to justify the ways of God to man, then the purpose of Django Unchained and movies like it is to unjustify the ways of man, right? Sure, to, to man, ways of yeah, man that to unjustify the ways man. of man to man. Yeah, it's like these ways of man have previously been justified. We are going to tell a story of a character's journey that unjustifies them for everybody. Right. Right. And so it makes it what it does, if you want to think about this as a companion piece to Paradise Lost, is it, uh, it sets up a dialectic of sort of justification and unjustification. Uh, that you could then position other works of art alongside. And you could say, like, well, is this a movie that's pointing towards a society that makes sense or a society that, that doesn't make sense? 
uh, and, and Django is firmly in the in the sort of uh, the root of the consuming force uh, rather than the generative force right. of, of cultural justification. So here's I mean here's another one, and it's uh, here's a uh, related but distinct point, which is that I mean Paradise Lost is about explaining what Eden was was actually about, you know, and explaining what that was, what the 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 meaning of that was actually like, and what what the sense of uh, kind of recovering a sense of what prelapsarian relationships, what prelapsarian sexuality, what prelapsarian ecology, um, you know, and also what prelapsarian kind of language and semiology must have been like uh, in light of, you know, what we know about the uh, about the fall of man. And, you know, that 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 this idea sort of before there, there's a there's a real sense of sort of before before and after. Uh, before and after the fall, um, Django Unchained has ha- has a mission that is sort of uh, antithetical to that again, which is you know, which is to sort of give lie to uh, the sense of an Eden, right? Give lie to the sense of of a uh, of a kind of paradise, a sort of well organized and sort of God's in His heaven, all's right with the world um, paradise. Yeah, I mean, I would say even even above that, like, or not above it, but um, past that, it, think about the story of Wotan, right, which is told, the story of Siegfried. You know, it positions, uh, and Wotan here is, is, I mean, it occurs to me, you know, Wotan is the slave master, right? In the story of Broomhilda, if, if Broomhilda is right. Broomhilda, yeah. and then, then Wotan is not God, right? Wotan is the slave master, or the, the slaver who puts Brunhilda on the plantation, Right, and you can sort of think about it also. I mean, it just occurs to me also related to Prometheus Bound and Prometheus Unbound. Right, uh, the the titles are so similar. The the comparison almost recalls itself. That that humanity uh, exists in a circumstance of of spiritual and personal constraint. Right, and the idea of of, of Paradise Lost being that humanity humanity's imperfections is are based, and humanity's limitations largely come from humanity's own unwillingness to continue to dwell in a limitless sort of obedience to the natural world, right, and and to God in the natural world, where where this is much more of a sort of antagonistic thing, where humanity's shortcomings are from you know restraints that have been put on it by by either other people or other sorts of heinous influences uh that that are external to them which they struggle against right the sort of struggle for self-improvement or the struggle for spiritual freedom uh it, it, and not neither of them are, are incompatible with a christian narrative i mean it's not like it's you know it's advocating that the world is actually run by the norse gods but it's like uh it definitely it definitely <laughs> yeah, come has on, this isn't the avengers or anything yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> come on we already had that movie this year we don't have to have another one this is the pair movie to lincoln not the pair movie to the avengers it's the dante's peak to that volcano not the other volcano <laughs> but yeah 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 but definitely like you know if if django and brumhilda are an adam and eve figure they're one that have been separated through no fault of their own and that is such a huge difference in the story and what they have to do to free themselves from the circumstances is so different from what an Adam and Eve and an Adam and Eve story are asked to do. But there is a similar notion that's in there about, you know, the importance of love and the importance of, of pairs of people and searching for people and kind of yearning for connection and that connection being essentially a good thing, right? So that, that there is some sort of aspect of the Adam and Eve story that's in there where it's like, you know, through the, the, the beginning of Paradise Lost is, is totally different from the beginning of Django Unchained. But the end of Paradise Lost is really not all that different from the end of Django Unchained. Sure, right, where they right, both right. have some to like wander tears off they, into the wilderness. Yeah, yeah. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The yeah, yeah. world was all before them. Where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide? They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Candyland took their solitary <laughs> way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's hard to get closer than that. Um. So, hey, uh, it's a new year. It's a new year for the Overthinking It podcast. And we would like to expand our listenership and we would like to grow the community of overthinkers because, you know, we sort of love what we do. We love this podcast. We love that so many people are into it. And we would kind of like to share that uh, with more people. So I'm going to go back to asking you to do two things. 
One is to share this podcast with a friend. If you have someone who you think might be interested in the Overthinking It podcast, this, you know, if they've seen Django Unchained, this is not a bad episode to start with. Hey, you know, you can send an email with a link and says, you know, hey, this is a podcast I like and you might like what they have to say about Django Unchained. Um, The other thing that you can do, honestly, because the only real uh, big numbers uh, aggregator of podcasts is still iTunes, is to go to the iTunes store, go to the Overthinking It podcast page and leave a, a star rating. Uh, which we would appreciate, or uh, a review, a, a couple paragraphs about the show, which we would appreciate even more. Um, if you could do any of these things, you'd be really helping us and helping us sort of grow to a point where where the show could be even more self-sustaining and, and we could devote more resources to making it awesome, which we really want to do. A, a little more to the production, a little more to the planning. And we could we would have a little more room to do that if we could... Um, you know, I, if we could fund it, if it could become a little more self-sustaining, uh, because everything that doesn't make money on the internet loses money because it costs money to be on the internet. So, uh, tell a friend or leave a rating, uh, if you don't mind, we would be very grateful if you could do, uh, either of those things. Um, it remains for me to thank the panelists. Thank you, Ben. Sure thing. And thank you, Pete. You are welcome. Uh, so if you want to join the conversation on Django Unchained, you can email us at podcastoverthinkingit.com. You can call or text 203-285-6401. Uh, and you can join the conversations, which are always lively, on the show notes of the episode. Oh, and I wanted to say something about that. I, I have to confess, I'm sometimes intimidated uh, reading our show notes because, um, you know, Pete writes a, like a heart of darkness length novella, uh, every day, you know, and, and, and a lot of our, uh, audience, a lot of our big commenters do also. And, and that's great. I mean, that's wonderful. Uh, that's what makes overthinking it, I think sort of unique, uh, on the internet is the kind of the care and civility with which, with which people sort of, uh, the thoughtfulness, I, I mean to say, which people post, but you know, one thought one paragraph, two or three sentences, less than a hundred words. That is, that is equally welcome and equally valuable to the to the discussion. Um, hey, even saying hi and introducing yourself in the comments uh, on the podcast show notes is valuable because that's that's kind of that's our community around this thing, and so we would love to see you there. So uh, find the show notes for this episode and and uh, and leave a comment and join the uh, join the conversation. Even if you can't muster, you know, a uh, a New Yorker language piece of nonfiction, um, we would be very, very grateful to have your voice there. Uh, this podcast will be back as it has been back these four years uh, next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. So did you have anything to say about the Germans, Matt? Yeah. Oh, really? What was that?